0: Thank you for downloading Crises and Kings with Rabbi Michael Hatton, an exploration of the Book of Samuel. This series is a production of Pardes North America in partnership with the Corn Podcast Network and is lovingly sponsored by the Newstein family in memory of Rabbi Dr. Joseph Newstein for his fourth yard site. Be sure to subscribe wherever you are listening. And now, Michael Hatton. Welcome back everyone to our Pardes podcast on Sefer Shemuel. This is Michael Hatton in Jerusalem. Last time we read chapter 6 of Shmuel Bet, which spoke about David's triumphant relocation of the Ark to Jerusalem. Remember that David had turned Jerusalem into his capital, the capital of the United Tribes of Israel. By relocating the Ark to Jerusalem, David now makes it not only the political center of his kingdom, but the spiritual center as well. And the glory and the triumph associated with this moment is now continued as chapter 7 begins with the king expressing an unusual desire. When David, the king, dwelt in his palace and God had caused him rest from all of his enemies, the king turned to Natan the prophet and he said, behold, I dwell in a house of cedars, while the ark of the Lord dwells within the curtain. Nathan said to the king, Everything that is in your heart, go and do, because God is with you. The conversation between David and Nathan is somewhat cryptic. Let's attempt to analyze what is actually taking place. We begin by noting. That this is really the first official mention of Natan, the prophet of David's court. Remember that the prophet Samuel died some time ago, recorded in chapter 25 of Shemuel Aleph. And really, from that point forwards, we had heard about a prophet by the name of God who was advising David during that period of time when he was a fugitive from Shaul. And now we hear of an official prophet by the name of Natan. From this point forwards, Natan will figure prominently in the story of David and David's court. And it is significant to note that this is a moment unlike anything ever reported during the lifetime of Shaul. Shaul never turned to Samuel the prophet for guidance or for instruction. Sometimes Samuel turned to Sha'ul with rebuke, and Sha'ul responded. But this is an entirely different model in which the king, representing temporal power, understands that they must seek the guidance of the spiritual power, the spiritual guidance, the prophet of the Lord, if they are to succeed. Later on in the biblical story, of course, there will be tremendous tension between these two centers, the king on the one hand, the prophet on the other. The prophet obviously is at a disadvantage in that he does not have the power at his disposal that the king does. But what David represents at this particular moment is some sort of an ideal combination of the two. The king and the prophet work in tandem in order to realize the divine plan. David turns to Natan and he points out a contrast. Here I am dwelling in a palace, but the ark of the Lord is within a tent. My home is permanent. The home of the ark is impermanent or temporary. So David does not actually express or articulate explicitly what his intention is, but it should be quite clear. What David is suggesting is that the time has arrived to create a permanent house in order for the Ark of the Covenant, the symbol of God's presence on earth, to be housed. Essentially, David is expressing the desire to build the temple in Israel. And Natan, at this particular juncture, encourages him to pursue that plan. Whatever is in your heart, do it, because God is with you. The desire to build a temple is a very ancient one in Israel. It's first expressed in the song at the sea as the people leave the land of Egypt in chapter 15 of the book of Exodus. And in that moment, the people see their triumph over Pharaoh and his minions who are overthrown at the sea and drowned. They see themselves rescued from their taskmasters by divine intervention. They look towards the future, entering the land and settling it. And in that vision of the future, they see a temple ultimately rising to express the idea of God's permanent presence in their midst, "Tiv'emo emo," they sing in Exodus chapter 15. Bring us in, plant us on the mount of your possession, God. Machon Paal Ta Hashem. God, you will establish a place for your dwelling. Mikdash Hashem kononu yadecha, the temple God, your hands will establish. It has been about four and a half centuries since that very first expression of a desire to build a temple is mentioned by the Israelites in the Tanakh. And now David understands that the moment has finally arrived. If we look at the conditions we might appreciate why David imagined that the time to build the temple had arrived and why Natan at this point agrees. David had been selected as the king of Israel by Shemuel, by God himself. After all, David had risen to become king successfully. The house of Shaul had been neutralized. After all, David succeeded in consolidating his rule and beginning the process for the very first time of uniting the tribes. After all, David had selected a national capital, which now was rising from the landscape in monumental form. After all, David had began the process of securing the realm from external threat, including the Philistines. The conditions seemed ripe for now continuing with the building of a temple as if to suggest the people of Israel were well on their way to achieving an ideal state of affairs. And Natan? looked at the situation, and frankly, agreed. That very night, the word of God came to Natan, saying, Go tell my servant David, thus speaks the Lord, will you truly build me a house within which I might dwell? I have never dwelt in a house from the time that I took the people of Israel out of Egypt until this very day. And I made my way in the tent and in the tabernacle. Whenever I went among the people of Israel, did I ever speak to one of the tribes and command them, one of the leaders, and ask them, Why have you not built me a house of cedars? The divine response, ultimately, that Natan is told to communicate is that David will not be building the temple. The time has not yet arrived. As God puts it, when that time comes, in verse number 10, that the people of Israel are firmly planted and dwell in security, such that their enemies no longer afflict them as they did at the first, when that day arrives, then a temple will be built, says God, but it won't be during your lifetime. You will be dead. It will be the, during the lifetime of your son that will issue forth from your loins, and I will establish his kingdom, God says in verse number 12, verse number 13. He will build a house to my name, and I will establish his kingdom forever. Effectively, God says, I am so touched by your desire to build the temple, David. No leader in ancient Israel up to this point had ever considered the possibility of building the temple. And God says, I never asked them to. I was perfectly content to be among the people of Israel in the tent and in the tabernacle. What exactly is God responding? First of all, David's overture, says God, is unprecedented. We have never heard an Israelite leader before express the desire to build the temple. And even though God says we are not yet at that moment when the time for the temple has arrived, nevertheless, God says, I am extremely touched by the gesture. And in this dynamic is embedded an extremely important idea about the nature of the temple. Essentially, God is saying the desire to build a temple must be the initiative of the people of Israel and not the divine imposition of God himself. God could have told the people, build a temple to my name. God could have told or commanded one of their leaders over those, over those four centuries to actually begin the process of constructing that temple, but God says, I never did. Implication, why not? Because the initiative has to come from the people of Israel or else it does not have meaning. If the idea of building a temple And bringing God's presence into our lives is a divine imposition, then effectively it is devoid of meaning. Only if we take the initiative, only if it is a desire of the people of Israel to incorporate God's presence among them, does a temple actually make sense. So fundamentally, God is saying, I am so proud, David, that you have expressed this desire. I have been waiting the longest time for an Israelite leader to express the desire of building a temple. Because that, after all, is the initiative, the only initiative that could unleash the dynamic of bringing God's presence into the world. God can impose his presence But then human beings have no choice. Human beings have no role. It's only if human beings, the people of Israel, desire God's presence in their midst that building a temple actually makes sense. So God says the aspiration is absolutely noble. But the time has not yet arrived for a very simple reason. Even though God says you have succeeded, David, in securing the realm, in creating a capital, in beginning the process of unifying the tribes, that process is not yet complete. There are still threats which loom over the kingdom, surrounding peoples that threaten the people of Israel. The unification of the tribes as a process has not yet been completed. God says, when that moment arrives and it will be after your death, then a temple will be appropriate. Then a temple will make sense. And in here is of course embedded another critical message, which is the building of the temple never solves problems. The building of the temple makes sense when all of the other problems have been solved. So until those problems have been solved, then a temple makes no sense. When all of the social, economic, security, spiritual problems have been solved by the people of Israel themselves, then a temple rising in their midst represents a crowning achievement, as if to say the ideal state has been created. But until that day arrives, the temple cannot be built. God says it will arrive, but not during your lifetime. Interestingly enough, in the book of Chronicles, when David recalls these events, he points out a different reason for the disqualification for building the temple. As he puts it in chapter 22 of the first book of Chronicles, and again, in chapter 28 of the first book of Chronicles, God says to him the following Dam la rov you have spilled much blood, you have waged great wars, you will not build a house to my name because you have spilled much blood on the ground before me. So here we find a completely different reason as to why David is disqualified. It's not because the people of Israel have yet to achieve a situation of complete peace, security and rest. It's because David himself is disqualified from building the temple because he has waged great wars, he has spilled much blood and therefore he cannot be the builder of the house of peace. It's sort of similar to the Torah's command that when we construct the altar that stands in the temple, we may not use hewn stones that have been shaped by iron implements in order to construct that altar. Because you have raised your sword upon those stones and you have desecrated them for the temple. Because the temple is the house of peace. The temple is the house of wholeness and perfection. The temple cannot be constructed out of stones that have been touched by iron, where iron is associated with weaponry, with warfare, with bloodshed, and perhaps David sort of places himself in a similar kind of situation, being a warrior king, In at least in the Chronicles version, he sees himself disqualified from actually building the temple. But we don't hear that reason in the book of Samuel. Of course, as some of the commentaries point out, there will be other events in David's life happening shortly in which blood will be spilled, innocent blood, and perhaps that is also an allusion to those events, as if to say, at this point in the story, God knows something that perhaps David doesn't yet know, and therefore God says, you will not build the temple, but your son will. You will not build the temple, but your son. That's not the end of the divine message to David. Natan continues communicating the word of God, and he says the following, I will build for you, says God, a house that will remain ruling over Israel forever. I will never take away my mercy or compassion from your descendants. Verse number 16, your dynasty and your kingdom will last forever. Your throne will be established until the end of time. This also, God says to Natan, must be communicated to David. So, employing a similar kind of imagery, even as David is disqualified from building the house of God, God assures him that his own house, his own dynasty, that is, will be established by God and will last forever. In consequence of David's desire to build the house of God, God now expresses the desire to build the house of David as it were, which is to say that kingship from this point forwards will only be associated with the house of David. That is not to say, that the kingship of the house of David will not be interrupted, but it is to say, whenever kings reign over the people of Israel, they will ultimately trace their lineage back to the house of David, and that will make David's dynasty eternal. David receives the word of Natan. On the one hand, disqualified from building the temple. On the other hand, offered an assurance of a dynasty that will last forever, David expresses no disappointment, no rancor, and no bitterness, even though perhaps this great opportunity has been denied him. On the contrary, David says in the continuation of chapter 7, I am undeserving of this divine bestowal and I am extremely grateful, God, that you have offered me this wonderful idea of a dynasty that will last forever. May it, in fact, come true, God. May your name be great forever. May your name over Israel last forever. And may my dynasty continue. David, therefore, expresses absolutely nothing but humility and gratitude at this transcendent moment, effectively, David will not build the temple, but his dynasty will continue. And David appreciates the divine blessing for what it is. For what it is. Servant, David says, be blessed by you forever. Blessed by you for this incredible chapter, with a reading from Sefer Tehillim, the book of Psalms, chapter 132, where these particular events are revisited and expressed in poetic form. And what we hear in this particular chapter in Tehillim is David's intense desire to build a temple matched by God's blessing of a dynasty forever and David's gratitude in receiving that news. A song of ascents. O Lord, remember in David's favor his extreme self-denial, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the Mighty One of Jacob, I will not enter my house, nor will I mount my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, an abode for the Mighty One of Jacob. The Lord swore to David a firm oath that he will not renounce. One of your own issue I will set upon your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my decrees that I teach them and their sons also, to the end of time shall sit upon your throne. The Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his seat. This is my resting place for all time. Here I will dwell, for I desire it. Thank you again for listening to Crises and Kings with Rabbi Michael Hatton, a production of parties North America in partnership with the Coran Podcast Network. If you like what you just heard, please give a five-star review wherever you download your podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Thanks for listening.